fantastic. Oh my gosh. People are armed with lightsabers. What a surprise. What a surprise. So I'm judging from that, this is your first time in front of a big crowd? <laughs> well, you know, I got a little confused and we had that little uh, cocktail reception and gradually people came and sat down and we started doing questions and answers and I thought, well, gosh, this is an intimate group. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is quite manageable. I thought that was the actual event. <laughs> so hopefully I haven't run out of clever anecdotes because I, uh, I only have a few, but. It's a bit different in here, though. It is. Um, so I, I thought I'd let the audience ask the questions because normally I sort of like do a little quick biographical uh, sketch of mine. I'm the middle of seven children. My father was in the Navy, so he, we moved. I went to nine schools in 12 years, which is a real sort of schizophrenic experience because once you get settled in one school it's always coast to coast you'd be in San Diego and you finally find your niche and wallop you get transferred to New York where the sensibilities are completely different and hey look here comes Surfer Joe you know you'd have to change your clothing and your attitude and your your thought process because you know your goal at that age anyway is just to fit in and uh, hopefully get a, avoid being beaten up on a regular basis. So, but uh, that's good enough. So now you know why I'm the way I am. Um, so as usual, we'll start off. I'll ask a few questions on my sure. own before opening up to the audience for some of your own questions. <laughs> oh my gosh! It's it's theater in the round. Oh, and you got terrible seats. <laughs> Unless there's mirrors over there. I must ask then, how does it compare to Cambridge now that you pointed out the room? Oh, that's the school that dare not speak its name. <laughs> I thought I was, you know, I did some research, you know, and I thought I'd be very clever and earn some points, and I thanked them for inviting me to a school of, of such stature. I said, to be quite honest with you, I would have had to uh, improve myself academically even to uh, qualify for a, a wooden spoon. And the reaction was very much like yours. <laughs> Just complete silence. And I said, my God, I thought this was going to be a huge laugh line because when I would, did my research, now they haven't given it out since 1909, but it, the wooden spoon was given to the student with the lowest passing grades of any given school year. And uh, I thought, gee, all that work. I mean, I went, all, I went to the... Tr I went to the tr I went to the trouble of reading your Wikipedia page on the car ride over. The least you can do is respond, so. But I, you know, I have to tell you, I did talk about how lowbrow I am. The first time I became aware of Oxford was Laurel and Hardy in a chump at Oxford. But to be fair, you know, no comedians have ever made a movie about Cambridge, as far as I know. And when they refer to you as Oxbridge, you guys get top billing, so. Well done. This school apparently is 392 years older than the discovery of America. And I live in Los Angeles where people will point out Taco Bells and say, that building's nearly 48 years old. <laughs> like you're gonna be impressed. Now I have old underwear older than that. Well, I can safely say that this is gonna be easy because I haven't even asked a question yet, so. <laughs> no, no, it's fantastic, thank you. Um, so. 
You've said before that you were slightly frustrated um, at the end of Star Wars, Star Wars Episode Six because we didn't really get to see Luke as a Jedi kind of, you know, properly. And then now we're at Episode Seven. Um, well, who here hasn't seen Episode Seven? Put your hand up. <laughs> Seriously? Okay, because you know I wouldn't have you ejected by any means, but well, I always thought you know at the end of. Uh, of uh, Jedi, I said, well, it's almost like the story of how James Bond got his license to kill, and then they end the stories, and you don't see him become an agent. But, uh, you know, it had a beginning, a middle, and an end, and I understood that that was the, the structure of it all. But, uh, you know, I, before I came over here, there, there was a guy that asked me the question of how much George, he said I was on Blue Peter and that I had, back in the day, and I was discussing the prequels, how much did I know about the prequels? Listen, now I'm asking myself questions. <laughs> and the only reason I did that is because I started to answer and then we had to stop and do photographs and I never got the, to, to answer that question. It is interesting because it was in, we went to North Africa on the first film and in some downtime, George was, and I were, had some, free time, and I said to him, why are we doing episode four? You know, why, why start at episode, why aren't we doing episode one? And he said, well, you know, they're, they're supposed to be like uh, the old Flash Gordon serials. And, you know, serial chapter plays were even before my time, and that would be like a 20-minute, uh, you know, serialized story that you go to the movies, you'd see the feature film, you'd see some cartoons, you'd see a newsreel, and you'd see a chapter play, usually with a cliffhanger ending, you know, the, the, you know, the cargo sailing off the cliff to its certain death, and then it would stop, and they'd say, you know, next week, you know, episode 12. So that was his intent, is to, to you know, uh, mimic the, the Flash Gordon serials. And he thought, if I call it episode four, we'll have that preamble, that, you know, that scrolling that is filling you in, much like the original serials did, you know, last week. And, uh, you know, Flash and Dale in the clutches of Ming the Merciless. And, you know, he said, I wanted to give the audience the feeling that they'd missed something and that they were coming into the middle of this story. So, uh, and he, you know, he, he would say really profound things that later I think, boy, that, that's, that's so uh, perceptive of him. I mean, I remember I wanted to go in on the day they were filming uh, Darth Vader's arrival onto, this, onto the spacecraft when you first see him, you know, because they were going to blow a hole in the door and he's going to come through the door and everything. And I said to George, you know, in the script, aren't you going to cut to two characters saying, who is that? That's the Dark Lord of the Sith, and he's the, you know, some exposition. And George just casually said, eh, no, he's all dressed in black, and we'll play some scary music. They'll know he's the bad guy. <laughs> I said, really? He's all dressed in black. We'll play some scary music. They'll know he's the bad guy. Uh, brilliant. Uh, you know, I, I was looking at it as much more analytically, thinking, well, they've got to be some dialogue to say who this guy is. But I did that on when Peter Cushing worked, too, because I thought, I'll never get to meet Peter Cushing because I don't have any scenes with him. So I made sure I went in and, and got to, to work with Peter, who, oh, parenthetically, I should add, I did my research with him, and this is before the internet, where you actually had to go to the library and read, read books. 
uh, and uh, he was really surprised that I knew that one of his first movie parts was in uh, A Chump at Oxford. He said, oh my dear boy, how did you know that? <laughs> I said, well, you know, and, and he, he uh, well, first of all, he was thrilled that I knew more than his Hammer films. It seems, you know, every time you meet an actor, you know, because when I met Christopher Lee, I was working on something that he was in, and I kept saying to myself, don't ask him about Dracula, don't ask him about Dracula, don't ask him about Dracula. And so what did I do? I asked him about Dracula. <laughs> and he, he, I remember he said, you know, my dear boy, that I played the role of Mistopheles in an operatic production in Bologna, I forget where. <laughs> And I felt, you know, terrible because, I mean, really, he was an actor of incredible range. And, uh, you know, uh, I, more than anyone, should know what it's like to be so associated with one role. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, coming from the standpoint of uh, never expecting you to be remembered for anything, it's, uh, and it's, you'd have to be a very cynical person to not uh, understand the kind of joy that this brings to people. I mean, some people don't really care. They either don't like it or they like it to a level where they see the movie and then they go on and they move it on. And then there's people that really like it and want to see it two or three times. And then there's what I call the UPFs, the ultra-passionate fans. And they're the people that see the movies and they read the books and they, they, they play the video games and they read the comic books and they read the role-playing games and they, they know way more about the films than I do at this point. Because I was totally into it when we were making the films. I really wanted to know everything about everything. But uh, once the film's over, it's over. And you have to you know, sort of flush the memory banks so that you can have more memory space to remember other things. I remember when I was on a soap opera, it wasn't so much learning the dialogue that was relentless, and it was all exposition. Those, you know, it's like Coronation Street or one of those, and I, it was always exposition. I get these phone calls and say, what? No, I didn't know. What was she arrested for? Did, does she know that Billy was embezzling his money? You would just go in these ridiculous conversations where you're keeping people caught up with what happened Monday through Wednesday. And it wasn't so hard learning the new dialogue, it was it, trying to forget it so you could remember new dialogue, because people would trigger you into dialogue and you go, oh my God, I'm saying a speech from three weeks ago, because it was all so similar. So in many ways, that's why I've forgotten a lot about Star Wars. I took a Star Wars trivia qu uh, quiz and did horribly on it. <laughs> you know, what was Han Solo smuggling on the Millennium Falcon? I think it was multiple choice and I still failed. I, I thought it was jewelry, I guess it's spices. <sighs> but uh, like I say, uh, and the fact that uh, they've become so generational, I mean, because they're set in a galaxy far, far away, there aren't, there's not clothing that dates you or, or like vehicles that are uh, associated with a certain year or hairstyles. I mean, these six, seven-year-old kids they see these movies and think we made them last week. And the parents get very excited and say, you know who that is, it's Luke Skywalker. And the, si the six-year-old has this ghastly expression on his face, like, what happened to this guy? <laughs> and I, I try and say, relax, relax, just tell him I'm Luke's grandfather. <clears throat> so we don't alarm the children. But uh, 
But I think they're very much like the Disney animated films in the sense that they're generational. So, you know, you, you like them as a kid, you get older, you show your kid brother and sister, you're older still, and you have children of your own, you show their, th them, and it, it's, it's something that you can share with the whole family. That was fantastic. <laughs> and I'm just getting warmed up. Well, yeah. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I want to make sure you got a quick look. But I, I was just about to rein it back in okay. to, to, to where we started, which is um, you've said before that you were frustrated that Star Wars ended with not seeing Luke as a Jedi properly. <laughs> <laughs> and then in episode seven, we still don't really see that. And even, you know, I know you can't really talk about what happens in the next two films, um, but you know, we seem to have missed this great period of Luke's life. Yes. Is that not frustrating for you? Well, um, you can get a lot of, of where they're going from episode seven in the sense that it's really about a new generation of heroes and villains and that we're relegated more to the roles that say Sir Alec or, or Peter Cushing or any of the other subsidiary characters play. It's not my story anymore. We had a beginning, a middle, and an end. Now, what's interesting is that there's so much back history that Luke has gone through. Uh, even if they're not going to tell it in the story it's proper, I have to know for myself what I've been up to. And so there's been a lot of discussion with Ryan Johnson, who's the new writer and director of Eight. Because really, with Seven, you know, he had a lot on his plate. He had to establish a whole new world, a whole new conflict, all these new characters. Uh, since uh, Han Solo was going to meet a certain fate. Did, uh, there's nobody here that hasn't seen it? All right. Yeah, it, all right. If, you, if you haven't seen it, put your hand up now. Go on. <laughs> well, I won't. I still, I mean, I'm programmed. I mean, they're pathologically secretive now. Uh, about, I mean, you can't even walk from your trailer to the soundstage without what they call secrecy cloaks. There are these big robes with hoods over. Sounds like a Jedi robe. It's very much like that. But I said, come on, we're at Pinewood. I mean, you're really protected in this space. He said, oh, no, drones. <laughs> said, really? Drones? Uh, and, you know, the other day I saw uh, Donald Gleason, you know, and... Uh, he was talking, I said, did I just see you come in from the, into the soundstage with a security robe on? He said, yeah. I said, you're wearing the same outfit you did in episode seven. What's the secret now? I think a few people saw it. But uh, it's just part of the fun, I guess. Now, back in the day, no one really cared, especially on the original Star Wars. Nobody cared. By Empire Strikes Back, there were... Um, there was a helicopter that was hired to fly over and we were in Finsa, Norway, shooting the snow sequences. And these, um, they bribed a couple of uh, pilots that were meant to be out looking for some lost skiers to buzz bomb <laughs> our, our set. And it appeared in the English newspapers. I loved it because they got photographs of like, uh, you know, um, uh, transport equipment, you know, traditional, uh, um, what do you call them, uh, snow machines or snowmobiles. 
with clearly the logo, the modern day logo of whatever company manufactured and the, 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 the caption under the photograph was strange alien vehicles <laughs> populate the world in the new Star Wars film, you know. It was, it was pretty funny, they didn't get to see much, but it was kind of exciting. I thought, wow, now people actually really care. In fact, uh, I've told this before, but when uh, we were shooting the climactic scene with my confrontation with uh, Darth Vader, uh, Irvin Kirshner, the director, pulled me aside one day. He said, I'm gonna tell you something now. I know it, George knows it, and when I tell you, you'll know it. And the reason I'm putting it to you this way is that if it leaks, we'll know it was you. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, what, what, what is it? Because the original scene was, uh, uh, you know, he's doing the dialogue about join me and together we can rule the universe, you know, together. Uh, you know, Obi-Wan never told you the full story or whatever it was. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And I, you know, I say, he told me enough. He told me, you killed my father. And in the, in the script that was printed for the crew and for David Prowse, who was playing Darth Vader, the climactic twist was, uh, you don't know the truth. Obi-Wan killed your father. And it was just as you see in the movie, I go, no! And it's... <laughs> and, and when you think of it, it's a pretty good twist if, you know, that were the, the, the but the, he said, what we're going to do is we're going to record that and then we're going to put in the line. And I was just stunned. I said, really? Oh my God, I can't believe it. What a great, great twist. And I had to keep it a secret for, you know, like, a, I don't know, however, between filming it and it coming out, the first time it was screened, Harrison turned to me and said, you never told me that. <laughs> I said, I said, <laughs> I said, I was, I was afraid to tell anybody because, because of, you know, the consequences would have been so extreme. And what was interesting about it was by this time, now we filmed it at Bormwood at uh, L Street Studios and at lunchtime, a lot of the background artists would go down to the pub to have lunch and a, a pint, and there were people from some of the tabloid newspapers with 50 pound notes saying, you know, if you get, you know, give me something, give me something, give me something. So not long after we filmed it in the newspaper, and it wasn't even a headline, it was a little box that says, Alec Guinness head batty in Star Wars 2. Meaning that someone had overheard him delivering that line over the wind machines. And by the way, 90% of those movies are dubbed after the fact because the sound is never good. There's wind machines. If 3PO's in a scene, his clanking has to be, it, it ruins the sound. They have to strip out all the sound and you have to build it from scratch, which is really difficult because if you think the dialogue's hard to deliver, you know, in its original incarnation, to add another layer of artifice on top of that is even more difficult. As, as Harrison once said, you can type this, you just can't say it. Uh, but uh, I was delighted because I thought, wow, they leaked fake information, which is pretty, pretty funny when you think about it. But uh, um, we, weren't just, we're, we weren't used to being uh, scrutinized that closely. 
And you, you mentioned how the new trilogy, uh, it's not your story right. anymore. It's about new sets of heroes and new sets right. of villains. Um, how have you found that in terms of from an acting and mentoring perspective? Are you guiding the new actors, you know, Daisy Ridley, John Boyega, right. both on screen and off screen of what it means to be a part of Star Wars? There's no way you can really describe it to them. I thought, well, first of all, I went to the table read and I was just knocked out at how good these, they're not kids, but how the, the new, I thought they were just wonderful. If anything, I should be asking them for advice. Uh, but in terms of how your life is going to change, and I mean, I'm sure they had an inkling because, I mean, there was something to base it upon. We, we discovered it as it happened. Uh, Harrison, Carrie, and I went out on a promotional tour before the movie opened. Only like it opened while we were on the tour, and we were, I think, flying from somewhere in Canada to Chicago. And we landed in Chicago, and there were all these people at the airport. And I said to them, "Oh boy, there must be somebody famous on the plane." <laughs> we were looking around, like for like who's on the plane? Maybe you know. Teddy Kennedy or some rock star or something like that. And as we taxied in, I went, hey, Carrie, look, there's somebody dressed like you with the cinnamon rolls on their head. <laughs> and look, there's a guy with a vest like you, Harrison. Oh my God, they're dressed up like characters from the movie. We couldn't believe it. You know, we just, we just couldn't believe it that, that it had caught on like this because we, so, we were sort of like in a bubble where you, you go from a car to a studio to the hotel room to a, recording studio and into a car and then back to the airport and you're sort of you don't get out in and and see this stuff you know you certainly don't get to go to the theater and and see how it's going down the very first day that they opened it in los angeles i was scheduled to to those were the 70 millimeter prints and they were still dubbing the 35 millimeter prints to release a few weeks down the road when it went wide, as they say, because it was just in select theaters. So I said to the driver, can you go buy Grauman's Chinese car and want to see where the movie's playing? One of the big controversies was that Fox, there was this big row back and forth of how to promote it. I mean, what the hell is this thing? You know, some of the ad campaigns decided to take it very seriously. A, a, you know, an entertainment voyage beyond your imagination, far beyond. And the other said, well, let's make it more like a rollicking comedy, like the little rascals in outer space, you know, bumping heads and, and you know, accentuate the more goofy side of it. But they couldn't really figure this out. So, you know, they missed all the, the dates and they had to release the film with no poster whatsoever. They just stapled photo, you know, stills from the movie lobby cards, they call them, the, the color, the big ones, but there was no poster. And I don't remember ever seeing any advertising on, on television, like usually on Saturday Night Live, which started in 75, they, whatever movies that were coming out would get a slot and you'd know what was happening. I don't remember seeing any uh, advertising. Um, Carrie and I went when we heard that the, the trailer was playing in uh, Westwood, and we went to the box office and said, they didn't know who we were. We just said, we're two actors that are in this movie Star Wars that you're showing the trailer for. We were wondering, can we just go in and watch the trailer? And, you know, and then we'll come right back out, you know, instead of paying the price and you know, seeing the movie. And for some reason, I don't know if this would ever happen again, they said, okay, sure. 
So we went in and watched the, it's the first footage we'd ever seen. I mean, I, we had, there were dubbing sessions, again, that we'd seen bits and pieces of it, but we'd never seen it cut together. And they didn't have John Williams' score, and there were very few effects uh, finished. But I do remember, because there, there's always somebody, you know, that shouts out funny comments, you know, when you go to the movie theater, and sometimes they really score, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, and sometimes they fall flat, but this guy, I'm telling you, it was so funny because at the end of the trailer, it, it was, it was the, it, they started, like, there was this pulse, like, boom, 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 boom. And the voice was, somewhere in space, it could all be happening. Cut to, they're coming in too fast, you know, and they were, they would cut to all this chaos, and then back to the boom, 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 with the slow, and so they're alternating between just, you know, explosion of action back to the narration. Um, and 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 uh, the, the the narration continued uh, towards the end. It was only sixty seconds or something. A billion light years in the making. Boom, 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 and it's coming to your galaxy next summer. And there was a big explosion, and it said Star Wars. And as soon as the narrator said, "And it's coming to your galaxy next summer," somebody. <laughs> The balcony yelled, yeah, and it's coming to The Late Show about a week and a half after that. <laughs> the Late Show, meaning television, because it looks so terrible <laughs> that it would be a complete flop and it would be on, don't see it in the theaters, you know, wait a week and a half, it'll be on TV. I thought it was funny anyway. Um, <laughs> because you couldn't really tell anything from, from it. But anyway, well, so I'm going to... The, to dub the 35-millimeter Prince, the guy brings me past Grauman's Theater, and I just couldn't believe my eyes. There were lines around the block. Because I said, if anything, it'll, it'll have a buildup. It'll be, it'll be a word-of-mouth hit. People will talk about it and say, have you seen this thing? you got to see it. Because people said to me, Do you, did you expect it to be so successful? Well, of course I didn't expect it, the extent of it, but I said, I did think it would be a hit because we were signed for one film and the contingency was if it made a certain amount of money, if it was successful, we were obligated to do part two and part three. And I said to my friend, I said, I'm telling you, it's got humor. Uh, women don't normally like science fiction, but it's got a strong female character. It's funny as hell, there's banter, there's sexual tension, there's a, we got, one of the greatest actors in the English-speaking world, the Academy Award-winning Sir Alec Guinness, right next to an eight-foot guy in a monkey costume flying a spaceship. <laughs> What's not to like? It's got everything. I loved it. I said, really, I said, it's so clearly, to me anyway, a, fa a fairy tale. If, if, you know, it's got a farm boy, it's got a wizard, it's got a princess, it's got a pirate, it read like a, 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 a mashup of so many other movies I'd seen before. A Little Wizard of Oz, a little The Dam Busters, World War II movies, Western films, pirate films. I mean, there were so many different cinematic references that everything old is new again. And by using so many recognizable uh, cinematic uh, moments, it, it sort of transmogrifies into something that's seemingly original in and of itself. So I thought it would be popular enough to, I said, well, wait a second, it cost nine and a half million dollars. Can you believe that? 
That's like the catering bill on a, a Marvel film these days. I mean, that, that's nothing. I mean, you get two big stars. They each get $9 million just to be in the movie. And that's not even the biggest stars, right? So anyway, uh, but I said, okay, but rule of thumb is two and a half times. So 18 plus four and a half. Okay, I think this thing's going to make easy. It'll make 30 million. Uh, and I said, even if it flops at the box office, word of mouth is such that it's got to become a cult film. There'll be so many pot-smoking college kids that want to go see this <laughs> at midnight right after the Rocky Horror Picture Show because it's goofy as all get out. I mean, it's like there's nothing quite like it. It might misfire big time. And I certainly never thought we'd be taken seriously by the mainstream media. Well, we never believed we'd be on the cover of Time magazine. Maybe some kitty magazine or something like that, or you know, Famous Monsters or some science fiction, Cinefantastique or whatever the, the magazines at the time were, but n never did we think that it would b have that kind of mainstream success. But I didn't think it would be a hit, um, but I, I couldn't figure out how it, w from the very first day. One of the things was, in those days, May 25th was, uh, jumping ahead of the queue in the sense that the big movies didn't come out until the first week that school was out in June. And by, by you know, uh, releasing it a week or two before the traditional date, we had a head start. We had seven to 14 days to try and get some attention before the other movies came out. Now, of course, everyone's followed that uh, model to the point where it gets earlier and earlier every year. Uh, you know, May 25th was the traditional uh, release date of the originals. Uh, JJ couldn't get ready for, they wanted to be May 25th, uh, the same date, and he said, I can't do it in time. Well, by releasing it at Christmas, it was such a great success. Now all of them are going to come out at Christmas time. You're doing so well, you wiped out quite a lot of my questions. Um, <laughs> so I'll end, I'll end with a, a few short questions from me, and then we'll open sure. it up to the floor. Now, I completely understand, you can't give any spoilers, but when you went to the first table read, did you look at Daisy Ridley and thought, think, she looks like me? <laughs> no, you clever minx. <laughs> I think it, it might, I mean, might, become disoriented and start spilling spoilers left and right. <laughs> First of all, when I read, I said, wait a second, why am I gonna fly 6,000 miles for a table listen? <laughs> uh, you know, come on, uh, you know, call me Luke Cliffhanger. <laughs> but I said, oh, I get it, because I mean, if I don't show up to the table read, that'll become a story in and of itself. I better show up, right? And every person had a specific place to sit. It's not like we just wandered in and just sat down. You sit here, you sit here, you sit here, you sit here, so forth. So I was across from uh, Karrison and Harry, and Daisy was <laughs> right in between them. And I thought, see, now they start reading things into it, because when they saw the photograph, they said, well, she's got to be the daughter of, of Han and Leia, because look at where she's sitting. And uh, I was sitting next to uh, Anthony Daniels, who's C-3PO. Um, but, uh, what was the question? 
I asked if, if you thought that Daisy Ridley looked like you in some small way. Well, uh, no, I didn't really, that didn't really enter into it. I mean, I'd read the script by that point, and it's clear that they don't really want you to know what her background is or where she came from. I thought, saw the parallels. I thought, well, she's living in the desert sort of aimlessly, and you know, I saw the parallels with my character and so forth. Uh, but, uh, and, and heritage is so important in the Star Wars films, you know? I mean, we didn't realize at the time, uh, you know, the whole thing that Vader's the father and so forth, and, uh, you know, when Return of the Jedi came along, because George, you know, always made it seem like he had all of these mapped out in his head. And then when I read that, the, that, that Leia and I were long separated twins, I said, hey, no, wait a minute. <laughs> is he trying to top Vader, is, you know, that he's dad Vader? I mean, come on. Because uh, I thought, if anything, let's go, for, let's go for broke. Let's have them unmask Boba Fett, and it's my long-lost mother. <laughs> You know, who's working for the resistance as a double agent. Let's, I mean, it's hard to top Vader's the father. I mean, that's the all-time, you know, twist ending of them all. Uh, but, you know, uh, so we sort of thought, did he tack that on? I mean, we, we couldn't really figure that out. And I do remember at one point when we were rehearsing a scene up in the dressing room with Kirsch, and I said, well, wait a second. So she's my sister... Princess Leia, does, does that mean that Luke is royalty too? And Carrie went, no. <laughs> I thought, okay, <laughs> just asking. But it really made me laugh to think how, you know, she really at that point, first of all, she loved being the only girl in the movie. Koo uh, Stark was in it, but she was cut out. I mean, there were some female characters that were authority figures and so forth, but the only real character that had any uh, story and of course she loved being a princess who wouldn't come on uh, but again it, would, it surprised me it took, I was taken aback at how adamant she was that no you're a farm boy I thought, <laughs> talk about getting the you know short end of the stick my daughter was just staying on the ride over you know she's you know she's raised in the lap of luxury and eating foie and and you know, drinking fine wine, and I'm out, you know, working on a rusty uh, moisture evaporator, you know, <laughs> sort of, uh, but, you know, it, it is what it is. But no, I didn't think so much that, I just thought Daisy was incredible. She's so genuine, so appealing, uh, you know, uh, I, you know, she's just lovable. It's, it's, she, and she's just luminous. I mean, she just beams, uh, She's just got a wonderful, wonderful charisma about her, and I just adore her. I, you know, she's roughly my daughter's age, and that's how I relate to her. Even though, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> oh, I knew all you, you smarties would drag it out of me. No, I, I, I don't mean anything by that. I mean... As actors, that's how I relate to her. And, uh, <laughs> um, but two final questions, which I know everyone wants to ask, and sure. then we will move it on to questions on it. So, the question on everyone's lips: Who would win in a fight, one Wookiee or five Ewoks? <laughs> 
so interesting you would say that because originally the concept was to go to a planet of Wookiees. And they said from the, from the budgetary point of view, it would be way too expensive to make all those costumes. And then George said, well, well let's just make really tiny. <laughs> well, let's make small Wookiees. Because the whole idea was, he loved the idea of medieval technology taking down you know, advanced technology with catapults and tripwires and all that sort of thing. So that was the original impetus for, for, the, for the Ewoks. But, uh, th you know, it, it's, that little, it's like if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? You know, it's one of those imponderables, I think. Five, I probably would, I think the Ewoks could crawl all over you and get up in your face. You know, at least with a, a, with a Wookiee, you could try and avoid them if possible. When we were kids, this was very important to us. We would rate the monsters. You know, we'd say, you know, if you could keep your wits about you, I think you could outrun Frankenstein. <laughs> and he's, his intellect is such, he's very childlike, you could probably distract him. We know he's got a thing for fire, so we'd make these notes. Dracula, now that's another story. He's got the hypnotic eyes, he can take over your will, you know, the, look into my eyes, look deeply. That would be scary. The Wolfman, forget about it. He'll. <laughs> He'd rip you off, I mean, it's, come on, you, you have no chance with the, everyone said of all the monsters, the easiest one to face, the mummy. He's dragging the leg, he's only got one good arm, if you can keep your woods about you, usually what happens though, people get so flustered, they fall, they fall, and the mummy overtakes them, and <laughs> breaks their neck, but these were all important questions to us as kids, and, and now there's new, the new version are Star Wars questions like that that are unanswerable. <laughs> but if I had to choose, I'd say uh, I'd take the uh, Wookie, one Wookiee over five Ewoks. So especially since the, the Ewoks are carnivorous. Weren't they trying to eat us? <laughs> in Return of the Jedi, I think we were on spigots getting, or in a big net, they were gonna make, they were gonna barbecue us. They thought uh, 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 our 3PO was a golden god. I mean, come on, it was a culture we totally did not understand. Um, and the final question, tying in two of your most famous characters. Who would win in a fight? The Joker or Luke Skywalker? <laughs> ah. Oh, gosh. You know, there's such a wonderful uh, feeling to play characters that are so diametrically opposed. Well, on the one hand, you have this icon of virtue and who's kindly and, uh, you know, and then you have this psychopath who's... Uh, takes such delight and, you know, finds cruelty and perversity delicious. It's, it's wonderful. Young kids, you know, you know are, find it very disturbing when they finally make the connection. I'm talking about four or five-year-olds, you know, when they, when they realize that I'm the Joker, too. It's, it's very unsettling to them. <laughs> um, but let me see. Um, I'd have to, th I don't know, because Luke has powers that the, the Joker doesn't have, but uh, uh, again, <laughs> I've never really thought about this. Uh. Well, to, to, to maybe help you, not to ask too leading a question, but what would the preamble to a battle between the two of them sound like? <laughs> So you dare face me. Face you? I'm ready to rip your face off! <laughs> uh, you know, 
You know, kids, kids will come up to you and say, do the Joker, do the Joker, do the Joker. And you, you know, you can't do the Joker subtly. In, first of all, I don't want to ruin the illusion. I always say, either turn, turn your back or close your eyes. And kids are so trusting. You know, if I told you to close your eyes, you'd say, hey, what are you trying to pull? Are you gonna lift my wallet? <laughs> but kids immediately will do it, you know, and then, then you can do the Joker. And the trouble is you have to really let it rip, you know, so you'll be in Toys R Us, you know, on aisle. <laughs> and people getting worried, oh, what, what's that middle-aged man doing that, <laughs> accosting that child on aisle five? Uh, but uh, yeah, I've had so much pleasure doing not just the Joker, but so many character parts that you would never get on camera because of your, the, the limitations of how you look. That's one of the things that's so liberating about voiceover. You don't have to consider, you make choices that you would never make on camera because nobody can see you. It's wonderful. And uh, the only time I get to use dialects, either when I was in New York doing plays or, or in animation. And I didn't really do animation until The Joker and it just opened up a whole new world for me. I thought, oh my God, this is just a, a dream come true. I was saying earlier, it's the ultimate lazy actor's dream. <laughs> you don't have to memorize your lines. You read them all. You, they don't care how you look. You can come in looking like hell. You don't have to shave. You don't have to have nice clothes. Uh, it's, it's just wonderful. I mean, I, I, there was a sequence I remember where we're, uh, I have a fist fight with Batman in a helicopter which crashes into a casino and slides across the floor. And I was saying to Kevin Conroy, can you imagine if we were doing this live action <laughs> with the miniatures and the stunt rehearsals and the stunt doubles and the, you know, it would take six weeks for sure. And, you know, we, we did the whole episode in four hours. You know, all that stuff. <laughs> and they, they put all the special effects in or the sound effects later. It's just fantastic. I just love it because we're all too young to have experienced the golden age of radio. And, you know, voiceover for cartoons is the next best thing because it's all in your imagination. It's, it's, uh, it's almost like the feeling you get when you turn the lights out and you tell your kids a bedtime story where it's all in their minds. Because when you do the when you do the soundtrack, it's before the animation is done. You usually do the, the voice tracks first and then they animate it to your voice later. And I, we, you know, I love the voiceover community. The, the, some of the best actors I've ever worked with are in voiceovers and they're incredible. I mean, the, you know, the, you have the five actors sitting there bored and each one of them are, can do 50 different impressions. I mean, not, they, they don't sound sort of like Orson Welles. Maurice LaMarche becomes Orson Welles. He was the brain on Pinky and the Brain. In fact, he dubbed Orson Welles in the, in the Tim Burton movie version of, uh, what's it called, Nathan? What is it? Ed Wood. It's my son, Nathan. Raise your hand, Nathan, say hi. <laughs> Right next, right next to Nathan is the baby of the family, Chelsea Elizabeth. Hand up, please. All the way up. That's my wife, Mary Lou. 
I should say my first wife, Mary Lou. Uh, and, and, and the missing child is the middle child, Griffin, who couldn't get away because he teaches uh, martial arts in, in Santa Monica and he has a class and you know, he couldn't get away from it. He's gonna come over at some point. But uh, anyway, so you're sitting with these people and I'm telling you, <laughs> it's so entertaining because they, they back and forth, I mean, it's, sometimes I think we should pay them to go to recording sessions for animation because it's so entertaining because you're sitting with amid, amongst these people that come out of stand-up and improv and, and uh, just brilliantly funny people and brilliantly talented people. A lot of people will come up to me and say, you know, uh, listen, I do the Joker too. And sometimes they do them great. And they said, you know, I can do funny voices. Can you get me into voiceover? And you think, well, you know, you, you don't want to embarrass them, but you know, what people don't understand is that it's not about doing funny voices. These are really good actors. Now, they're playing characters that are exaggerated and, 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 and uh, you know, sometimes you, you do, uh, sound very cartoony, but it's not a matter of being able to make funny sounds and voices. And I think a lot of times they don't get the credit that they're due because uh, for some reason, you know, for, I don't know. I don't have a lot of people coming up and saying, you know, I should be on Broadway, you know, I do this and that, or I should be in movies or whatever. But lots of people say, oh, I could do cartoons. Listen to my Homer Simpson. You go, oh, that is good, I like that. Uh, but it's, you've got to be dedicated, you know? It's not a matter of being able to do, good, do a good Homer Simpson and you're going to have a career. It's hard work. I go to drama classes all the time and I hate to be a buzzkill, but I try and talk kids out of show business. <laughs> Seriously, I say, if there's anything you like as much as performing, even if you get into it academically and become a drama teacher, or if, you, if there's something else you like, you can still do community theater, you can do amateur theater, you can still perform, but I'm telling you, if you get into it as, as, a, as a profession, you're in for a lifetime of rejection and uh, um, unemployment. I mean, you could have a, you, know, you get seven or eight jobs and then you don't work for a year and a half. You know, <clears throat> you start running out of money, you have to go drive a cab or, or wait tables or something. It's a, a miserable profession, believe me. Uh, please don't do it. <laughs> uh, and that's not just from the standpoint that, you know, obviously there's probably people in the audience more talented than me that will be stealing my jobs if, uh, if they succeed. It's not that, it's just the fact that it is, it's only for the, if you can't talk someone out of show business, then they have a shot. Because my parents kept saying, get a degree, something to fall back on, you know, if, if it doesn't work out, if it doesn't, you know, and I thought, oh, they're probably right. Now, I, I went to college for uh, two years, four semesters, and, and my, you know, my motivation was, in those days, if you didn't go right into college, you'd get drafted into the Vietnam War. And I'd wanted to play a soldier, I didn't want to be a soldier. But, uh, so that's, by the way, that's great motivation, you know either higher learning or here's a gun, go kill some people. So uh, I, I, I think that uh, in a way, uh, I thought, well, if I had to do something else, I guess I could be a teacher. I do like 
people. I love, it's in, in many ways, lawyers also. Teaching and lawyers, you have a, a, you have a captive audience. They have to watch you, even whether, if they don't want to or not. And there's a certain performance element in, in both those professions. And I do, I love young people. I thought I should teach kids that before the hormones kick in. I mean, the teenage years, I don't want to have to deal with that. But if I could get grade school kids, like say 10 and under, I should be like an elementary school teacher or something like that. And there were teachers that were really influential on, on me that I've never forgotten to this day. And I thought if I could be one of those teachers that really make uh, learning interesting and, uh, and challenging and where you go, oh boy, I can't wait to get to class. He said, oh no, not him again. That I could, I could handle. But there was also something that was really, I love the allure, the, the danger of working without a net. You know, it's one thing to be a tightrope tight walker if there's a net, as opposed to being a tightrope walker where you could plummet to your death at any moment. And uh, that's the, the, the disconnect between someone who's rational and someone who's just crazy enough to go into show business and stick to it no matter what. And you see some of these actors, you go, how did that actor go through all of his 20s and 30s? He's like a character actor who really only came into his own when he was 45. Bob Hoskins, apparently, didn't get into it until his 40s. Um, there's a long list of character actors like that. Uh, but uh, if you can't talk someone out of show business, they probably have a pretty good chance of making it. Because sometimes I think tenacity is more, almost more important than talent. It's equally as important, for sure. Well, thank you, Mark. We, we now have time for yes. quite a few questions from the audience. Uh, oh, well. Um, okay, so if you'd like to ask a question, please raise your hand high in the air, and a microphone will come round to you, uh, which will amplify your voice. If we can please go to the member here. And I'll try and be as brief. You know, if I go on and on, I want to try and get to as many as I can. First of all, I like your beard. Oh. <laughs> it's contractually obligated, but proceed. Um, and second of all, how did the ca uh, casting process differ between Luke and the Joker? I mean, other than the obvious. Uh, well, uh, I heard that George Lucas, I knew of American Graffiti, he was doing a movie that was basically a sci-fi fantasy modeled on the uh, Flash Gordon films. When you went in, you didn't get a script. They just wanted to get a feel for who you were. And I noticed there were guys that were sort of teenage uh, aged like me, and there were middle-aged more. So they were looking at Hans and Luke's. I didn't, after I passed that part where I just talked to George, and I was, he was having uh, auditions uh, with uh, Brian De Palma, who was looking for actors for Carrie, the horror film based on the Stephen King novel. And uh, once I, we went on and talked, now I had auditioned for American Graffiti, but I never met George. I didn't make it past his casting director, Fred Roos. Came in, did the same thing where he tells a little bit about yourself, and I wasn't right for anything in graffiti. Uh, but after that, I got a, a, a script in the, in the a, a scene in the mail, and I memorized that and, and did a screen test on videotape with Harrison. Um, again, with very little knowledge. I, like I say, I didn't read the whole script until I got the part. With Joker, I knew Batman since I was a kid. I, I knew that it was going to be modeled on the Max Fleischer Superman cartoons, which were really high quality, that they were going to try and appeal to 
adults as well as children. They weren't gonna, weren't gonna do it like the previous incarnations. So I said, boy, I'd love to be a part of that. And I'd love to play a villain, but I'd like to play like Two-Face, Dr. Hugo Strange, Two-Face, I don't know, somebody that's never been done before, Mad Hatter, somebody that hadn't been done on the TV series. And they gave me, when they found out I wanted to be in it, they gave me a part in Heart of Ice, which was the first Mr. Freeze episode. And I was stunned at the script by Paul Dini. I said, my God, this is so deep. It's so melancholy and poignant. It's clearly miles ahead of most of the cartoons that were being made at the time for, for children. So I went in and of course I let my geek flag fly. I mean, I was all over the place in terms of my enthusiasm for Batman. Are you gonna do this character, that character? And they kind of remembered me later when they were casting the Joker because the original actor, they changed their minds after they had done six episodes, which were the hardest for me to do because I had to dub already finished animation with the Joker voice. By seven episodes, uh, after six or so, they were original episodes because then I could really relax and do my own cadence and my own timing. But I went in, there was just a black and white drawing of the Joker, it said, all it said was, don't think Nicholson. Because <laughs> they didn't want you to just imitate, they didn't want Jack, because he'd already done it for the movie and you know, he was brilliant. Uh, and, and so it really, and you don't, you, it, and in both these cases, you're trying to get information is, you know, to, to try and, and, and fulfill their vision. A lot of times they don't know until they hear it themselves. You know, when I was saying to Harrison, I said, hey, is this like, are we supposed to be making fun of this? I mean, come on. I mean, you know, the scene that we're doing for George, you know, you'd work with him in graffiti. I mean, is this the, a parody or is it for real? Hey, you know, come on, let's just. <laughs> just say the lines and let's get it done. Uh, so I couldn't get anything out of anybody. Same with Joker. I thought, well, you know what? One thing that gave me confidence is I said, there's no way they're going to cast the guy who plays Luke Skywalker to be this icon of villainy. So I was really cocky in the sense that there, I knew I couldn't get the part. Sometimes what trips you up is that you want it so bad, your nerves betray you and your timing's off. You're trying, you're, you over sell it, or I don't know, it's, it's hard to describe. But the one thing that I felt about Joker was, since there's no way I can get this, just from the standpoint of, of the publicity of saying, you know, because years after I did it, people kept saying, that Mark Hamill? You know, and, and they demand on the street, do the voice. That's not you, is it? Uh, but, uh, but I had the confidence of knowing that I couldn't get it. So I said, you know what, I'm going to go in there, give them the best damn Joker they've ever heard, heard and they're going to really regret the fact that they can't hire me. I, was, <laughs> I had this arrogance when I did it, which worked well for the part. Uh, and I had a lot of uh, laughs that I developed because I'd been doing Amadeus and, and Mozart was described as having a ghastly laugh that was so in contrast to this celestial music that was coming out of him, it just galled Salieri that he brayed like a donkey. And when you're doing eight a week, you know, you can't change the words, but you can play around with the laugh. And I'd been doing eight a week for like nine months or something. I was up there in the 400 performances and I was really getting crazed trying to keep it fresh every day. So I went in there with quite an arsenal of laughs and later they told me that was the deciding factor was the laugh. 
that, that, uh, that got it for me. But like I say, which, and I swing from great confidence and then 180 degrees when they called and said, well, you got it, and I said, my agent, and I said, I got what? They want you for the Joker. Oh, no. <laughs> I can't do that. They go, why not? I said, it's too high profile. Nothing I do will match how people hear him. I don't even believe, I, I, I'm terrible. I can't play that part. I told you I want to play Two-Face or Mad Hatter or somebody that no one ever heard before. Cesar Romero's done it. Jack Nicholson's done it. Heath Ledger hadn't done it at that point, but I just thought, what did I get myself into? And of course, your actor friends don't help at all. Like, wow, you're brave. I said, what do you mean? Well, I wouldn't want to fault Jack Nicholson in anything. I go, oh no! <laughs> oh my God. And I couldn't remember what I'd done. I'm driving, now I know they have reference tapes that they can play for you, but I'm driving to the first recording of The Joker thinking, wait a minute, how did I laugh? <laughs> you know, of course in Los Angeles, people laughing to themselves, no one pays any, <laughs> any mind whatsoever, you know, because you know, there's so many uh, people untethered from reality. <clears throat> but um, uh, like I say, I, I went from great confidence until a push came to shove and I had to do it and I thought, oh my God. Well, what's the worst that's gonna happen is I'm gonna go, I can't remember what I did, I'm gonna be terrible and they'll just replace me. You know, that's the easiest thing to do is to change a voice in animation. Right up into the last minute, you can change, pull somebody's voice out and dub somebody else in just weeks before you release it into the theaters. You can't do that live action. And remember when I told you I keep my answers short? <laughs> Yes. Oh, I'm, you pick. <laughs> That's all right. Thank you for your question. Um, can we please go to the member in the front row there? Hi. Um, obviously, you've been involved in a lot of truly great Batman works, but what's the one Batman work that you weren't involved in that you wish you'd been involved in? Well, you know, I'm a great audience. I love so many of the actors that have played Joker buddies of mine, Jeff Bennett in Brave and the Bold, Kevin Michael Richardson in The Batman, John DiMaggio, who plays Bender on, on Futurama, did it in Under the Red Hood. I don't my, know Michael Emerson, but I think he's wonderful in The Dark Knight. It's a character like any great part that's meant to be interpreted by many different actors in many different ways. <clears throat> One of the things that I always try to do with my Joker is imagine that you're playing it for the very first time because so many of those scripts in the original incarnation were different, like one would be stark and pretty scary, but it was for children. There were standards and practices, the censors. You couldn't, you could, you couldn't kill, say, people would write and say, why don't you kill people? You're a homicidal maniac. Well, we couldn't do that. It was a, ch a children's cartoon. And then there would be episodes that would be lighthearted, like a takeoff on Thelma and Louise, where uh, uh, Harley teams up with Poison Ivy and I'm, you know, puttering around the house in an apron and, you know, like, I'm totally emasculated. And I knew my role there was to, to be the comic relief in that episode, but it was miles away from, say, Mask of the Phantasm. Each time you play it, try it, and the same thing when you're doing eight a week. When you're on Broadway, you go, oh my, I'm dragging my rear, I don't want to do it today. I'm just, and it's a matinee day, I've got two. I, I don't want to do it twice. I don't want to do it once, much less twice and it's freezing, there's sleet going on, she's in her footy pajamas, she doesn't have to leave the house, she's gonna order take-in, oh, I resent her horribly. 
But then you get to the theater and you realize you've got a whole full house out there. They've never seen it before. It's like the very first time. So even though you've done it over and over and you're bored with the story, you have to be, put yourself in the frame of mind of the audience. And that's what I do with the Joker. And the Joker in the animated, or the, the Arkham games is as nasty and you know, adult as can be. So in contrast to those early cartoons. We're now doing short cartoons that are aimed at a younger audience. Uh, I forget what it's called, Justice League Action. I've only done a handful of them, but we're almost like a double act. If Kevin is gonna do Batman, you know, it's Laurel and Hardy. If he's Batman, I, you know, he's my guy. He's my favorite. He's one of the nicest guys in show business. He's just one of the sweetest men in the world. I adore him, and we're like a double act, because I mean, when I don't play Joker, then it's usually a different Batman. That's just the way it is. So I hope I answered your question, but it's like a different role every single time. Thank you for your question. Um, can we please go to, uh, remember there in the glasses there. Hi. Hi. Um, after the last Star Wars film was released, um, a lot of people thought that there was a lot of chemistry between Poe and Finn, and that maybe like they should be a couple. Do you think we will ever see a same-sex relationship in a Star Wars film? The question was, do you think there should be a same-sex... No, do, that we will see it. I, well, I just read online, I don't know if it's true, because I didn't hear it come out of his mouth, that J.J. is very much open to that idea. You know, I mean, the internet is a very interesting experience for me because in the old days you'd get fan mail and you'd sign as much as you can until it gets so voluminous that you, you had to have help and so forth or form letters that you just signed or something. And a lot of times I would say, you know, I don't have time to specifically answer your letter, but, you know, the signature is real, et cetera, et cetera. But now it's like the, the fans come right into your house and they ask you all these questions. I'm getting bullied at school. I'm afraid to come out because my parents are religious and they'll hate me and so forth. It just breaks your heart. And they would say to me, you know, uh, do you, could, could Luke be gay? And I would say, you know, it's meant to be interpreted by you. If you think he's gay, of course he's gay. If you think he's straight, that's all. Anything you want is real. You shouldn't be ashamed of it. You know, judge Luke by his character, not by who he loves. Um, it seems to me that the trauma of discovering that the only girl you had a big crush on is your sister. <laughs> You know, I mean, I know it's all, we all have a big laugh about that, but from, if you're in character, that's a traumatic experience. <laughs> you know, I mean, and there's not, in the original trilogy, there weren't a lot of options. She was about the only eligible young woman in the whole universe. But, uh, <laughs> so, uh, well, I just, I just do think that they're, uh, they're fantasies meant for children. Children of all ages, of course, but because they are that, they aren't meant to address adult sexuality specifically. But I'm, I was saying that it's a, it's, a, it's a universe of acceptance and unification. It's helping others less fortunate than yourself. It's acts of selflessness, uh, of caring and sharing. To me, that should tell you that if we can accept characters of every kind, of, of human and alien, 
what are the odds? Come on. I mean, uh, yeah, and I, I think the question is, how specific do they, they want to get? Because for really young audiences, they don't even understand, you know, they see their mommy and daddy smooching or whatever, but, you know, you have to strike the proper balance. But it's obviously a, a galaxy far, far away that's filled with inclusive uh, tendencies. Thank you for your question. We've got time for a few more questions. Um, can we please go to the, let's go right at the back. Let's go uh, there in the blue. Yes, right back row. Thank you. You may have already covered this, um, but the first Star Wars in the UK, from what I understand, was like a mini mutiny, right? Everybody thought George Lucas was an idiot. Nobody wanted to be on the set. The actors were incredibly critical, some of them. I'm just curious, sort of, to the extent you observed it, kind of how you saw George the Lucas. The attitude towards the film when we were first making the, it? The, the, first, the first production and when the part yeah. was in the UK, yeah. Yeah. And it was well, very badly, and so how, how did he kind of lead through that? How did you lead through that? And what was your well, impression me, of him? How did well, what I have to tell you is that the, the crew that was making it they were all very professional, but they all thought it was to kindly, put kindly, rubbish. <laughs> you know, they thought it was silly. I mean, there's not a lot of things they could compare it to. Doctor Who, maybe. There's a comic strip called Dan Dare. The, the idiom was not really something that was familiar to the British crew. So they were really nice and they liked all of us, but they just thought it was ridiculous. They thought it would be a movie that would be released only in matinee for children in the daytime. And they, I love the British sense of humor. We had a Kenny the Boom guy. You know, you'd be, you'd be doing this dialogue, you know. You know, but I, you know, you know, I, I want to go to Alderaan with you, you know. Uh, you, there were all these phrases that were uh, you know, unusual to their ears. And, you know, it'd get picked up by the crew. And you'd be walking along the, the hallway and you'd pass Kenny and go, Alderaan, we're all going to Alderaan, mate, all of us. <laughs> and, you know, and he'd always be there, and you do this really uh, difficult dialogue, and you'd look up at Kenny holding the boom, and he'd always give you the eye roll, like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it was all, and believe me, there was a typo one day on one of the, when they were trying to t uh, type Obi-Wan Kenobi, and they added an eye where they shouldn't, and it came out Obi Wonky. <laughs> we didn't know what that meant, but the crew never let us forget it. <laughs> Obi Wonky, eh? you're right. You're right, yeah, you're right. Uh, but no, but they were very kind about it, but I just thought, you know, you have to believe in what you're doing. I thought it was good. Um, I asked uh, Sir Alec one time, I said, why would you want to do a movie like this? I couldn't believe that we would, were able to get an actor of his stature. And he said that he always want, imagined himself playing a wizard in a, in a film for children. So, and I, I think you noticed the influence because later when they did Superman, they used that same predicate, get an actor of such gravitas, Marlon Brando, and then you get away with casting a bunch of unknowns in the leading roles, and that's... What was your impression of George? Did you think you were working with a genius? No. I thought... 
and I don't mean that in a mean way at all. I, I, I thought he was an incredibly gifted filmmaker. I knew his work from, from American Graffiti. I thought the, the script for Star Wars was fantastic. It said by George Lucas. I didn't know that Gloria Willard Hike had helped him with it. They wrote a lot of the comical dialogue, the banter, because they had written American Graffiti and they were uncredited for it. Uh, but I thought he was just an incredibly brilliant filmmaker. Genius is a word to describe, uh, like, say, Mozart, who at age six could compose, you know, I mean, sonatas, you know, where people are so gifted it's beyond reason to be able to describe through any rational way how they're able to achieve that. So I think genius is an overused word. In, in, especially in Hollywood, uh, but I, I, I think he's second to none at, at doing the kind of thing he does better than anybody else. So I had a deep, deep respect for him. There's no question about it. Thank you. We've got time for one final question. Um, so can we please go to, oh, this is tricky. Who, actually you pick. That guy. <laughs> yeah, no. uh, so okay, we'll go to the, We'll go to the, uh, the young woman with the glasses there, three rows back. Yeah, you just stand up. Thank you very much. I love we have to spend so much time picking the, who's going to ask the question. So I didn't realize how good accents you are. Um, is that something that just came naturally, or was you worked it? And do you have a favorite accent you like to do? Well, you know, like I say, I mean, we were talking earlier about the Joker. Um, I, I started out thinking I should do Claude Rains from The Invisible Man. Crazy? You think I'm crazy? I'll show you who's crazy. I said, well, I better put a spin on that. It's not the greatest Claude Rains ever, but I don't want to be spot on doing Claude Rains. So you start adding other elements. I said, I want him to be teetering into, into like, he's like trying to maintain sanity and he's like on the verge of just losing it. And I thought of, um, the Blue Meanie from uh, Yellow Submarine. Glavi Davi. <laughs> and so I put a little mix of, of the Blue Meanie and with, with Claude Rains. And I mean, believe me, I have so many different influences that sometimes you're not even conscious that you're doing them until somebody points it out later. So, uh, um, and like I say, no, I'm never confident. I mean, I really think Sometimes I have my moments and that I'm effective, and sometimes I feel like the biggest fraud in the world where they're gonna to come to my door and want money back. I was so terrible. Uh, but now I can be terrible in IMAX and 3D. <laughs> uh, on, on a really, really big screen. Uh, but I'm telling you, it's, it's uh, to, to be sitting here in front of you now, if you told me that I would someday be at Oxford, talking to people that are interested in anything I have to say, I would have said you're out of your mind. So uh, I really want to thank you all for making me feel so at home. And uh, it's oddly comforting and reassuring to know that I have the lowest IQ in the room. <laughs> so thank you.